Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. I hope to speak to people today like me. When they start to be reminded of their own unworthiness, they don't fall into the trap of doubting that God truly cares and that God truly loves. Because for those of us that are adopted children of the King, He does and He always will. sing songs about forgiveness, but when the weight of our unworthiness hits and we start to sense the depth of God's grace, it's overwhelming. We ask, how could God love me? Even the Apostle Paul addressed this, saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is encouraging us to hold on to the fact that Jesus loves us and accepts us, even when it makes no sense. Well, let's dive in. A lot of things I don't quite know how to answer. In the theological world, there are tons of things that are very difficult to answer. There are questions that come out all the time that are just stumpers, issues of God's sovereignty reconciled to, to man's uh, choices and will. The Trinity, how God can be uh, revealed to us as, as three, yet, yet one. But of all the theological questions that are really worth pondering, there's probably one that's at the top of the list that is uh, most perplexing. And it's the question, why would God, a perfect God, a God with uh, no moral flaws, with no problems, with no inconsistencies, in absolute perfection, why would that kind of God look at people like you and me and choose to love us? I mean, really, why is that a reality, that such a perfect God would look at such imperfect people so far beneath him, so morally inferior, and say, ah, you'll be the object of my love, and I'll love you? Why would God do that? Now, I know you might expect a question like that in church, and it's kind of an old saw, and we sing songs about it, and we pray about it, and from time to time, preachers preach about it, but we really need to ponder that question. It's huge. I mean, God, who is so perfect, looking at people so beneath him and saying, I love you. Not only do I love you and say that, I mean it and I back it up with sacrifices on my part. I will go out of my way. I will even be hurt for your benefit. I mean, you want to put it in perspective. Why don't you think of some morally inferior people to you? I mean, there are plenty, right? Look in the newspapers. Look at the, the mass murderers of our, of our generation, the Dahmers and the Gacy's and the Bundy's and all these people that have murdered and slaughtered people, the, the, the slime, the moral filth of our society. Think of those people for a while. Put all those people in a room for a minute. Think of the Boston Strangler and Ramirez, the Night Stalker, and these people that are just merciless in their killings. Put those people in a room, and those are people morally beneath you. Now, if you're a parent, think of your children. Think of something or someone precious to you. I think of my little three-year-old, Matthew, who I love dearly. I go up to, sometimes and whisper in his ear and say, Matthew, uh, who, who loves Matthew? <laughs> A little smile stretches across his face. His daddy. His daddy, daddy does. And I'll say to Matthew, I say, little Matthew, I say, how much do you love daddy? He stretches arms. Daddy, I, I love you this much. I think of that kind of relationship with my precious son. And I think of that room full of people that are morally inferior to me. 
And I think whatever would possess me to take that child that I love so much and willingly torture and kill and murder and have him exposed naked before people, spit upon, beaten, crown of thorns jammed into his head. What kind of of wild, bizarre transaction? What do you call that when someone is willing to sacrifice that for moral inferiors? And that's love. It's a kind of love that's incomprehensible to us. It's incredible love. And when I say incredible, I mean it's incredible. It's hard to believe. It's hard enough to believe when you put it in perspective like that in church when you all have a Bible on your lap and you're nicely dressed for a Sunday morning and you've spent a half hour in worship. It's hard enough for us to grasp that now, but I think it's most difficult when we look in the mirror after another failure. We start to see ourselves and just a, a little glimpse of reality washes over us and we see just how unlovely we really are. When we see how distasteful our life has become and Perhaps in the wake of our own sin or on our knees with tears down our cheeks, confessing again another thing that has offended a perfect God. And we we start to, to really have a hard time grasping that fact then. Does God really love me? Now, I know there are lots of people in lots of churches that try to make us in some way feel as though we're attractive and, and, and in some way uh, uh, desirable to God. But if you really know your Bibles, you're under no such... Uh, Uh, delusions of that. You recognize that our lives are, even in the best of our lives, we are just filthy rags. Our righteousness is rejectable to God. And we understand that there's such a chasm between who God is and who we are, that if God would ever really stoop and sacrifice something as precious as his own son for our well-being, it would be a mind boggler. And, And when we try and comprehend that, it's hard. But when we really think about our sin or maybe when something bad is happening in our lives and we see these things happening, perhaps we're we're tempted as genuine Christians to think, well, maybe this is because God is really mad at me. And maybe these things are happening because God has removed his favor from me and Perhaps these things are are falling apart in my health or in my relationships or in my finances because, you know, God just doesn't care about me quite as much as I thought perhaps he did previous or maybe because of my recent sin or because I just haven't lived up to his high standards, he's, he's maybe removed some of his kindness toward me. I can imagine for King David in the Old Testament, it must have been very, very hard. Memories of adultery that uh, probably haunted him as he tried to bow his head to pray. The phrases that he repeated in his mind in those moments of doubt that he uttered to the commanders of the army to go have Uriah killed on the battlefield, that he was really guilty of of the blood of an innocent man. The compromise, the cover-up, the hypocrisy. I imagine that's why that when things went really bad for David, you see through the crevices of his exterior shell, you start to see comments that reflect perhaps a little doubt about whether God still loves him. You see him uttering in his songs of contrition, God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You see him saying to the people around him about Absalom, this upstart son, the leader of this coup. You start start seeing David call him king, and you start to wonder if he's really kind of believe the fact that God has rejected him. 
You see him responding to those around him when Shimei walks up on a cliff and starts throwing dirt clods at him. And he says, no, 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 just let him do that. Perhaps this is what God wants to say to me today. Well, there may be some virtue in listening to criticism, but I mean, perhaps in that you see the motive of David recognizing, man, maybe God just doesn't like me as much as he did before. Perhaps I deserve all this and God's mad at me. Perhaps whatever love he had is just not to the level it, you know, it is now because I've done wrong or I'm unlovely or I've done things that have hurt him. Well, the good news for both David and us is that 2 Samuel chapter 17 screams off the page a rebuttal to those kinds of doubts. In 2 Samuel chapter 17, God is saying to David, you know what, I know you're unlovely, but I love you anyway. I know you don't deserve my my favor and my kindness, but I give it anyway. I, I know you have doubts about whether I care for you, but I care about you anyway. Look at this passage with me. 2 Samuel chapter 17 should come as music to our ears, as as a sense of relief for those of us, genuine Christians, who have doubted the love of God. Now, there are two problems with this message. Two right now that I know are potential problems with a sermon like this. Number one, you can be sitting here today as a non-Christian and try to jump on the bandwagon and feel as though these comments and statements and affirmations apply to you. They do not. I have no promise that God's love or favor or grace will abide on you forever. I I don't know that because as a matter of fact, if you're a non-Christian, there will be a day when God removes his presence, his grace and his favor from you. Hell, we think of it as such a a torturous place. Well, it is torturous, but not because God is active, but because God is passive. Second Thess 1 says he'll just remove us from his presence if we're non-Christians. He'll say, fine, you can have it. And Jesus depicted it this way. It's outer darkness. It's being alone. It's where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth because there's no grace of God. There's no presence of God. There's nothing good. So this message does not apply to you would highly recommend that you commit your life to Christ so that it will. But if you're a non-Christian, be sure you understand I'm talking to Christians this morning. The other problem would be those of you that would think this is a great license for us to do whatever we want. I start to affirm in your minds that God loves us even when we sin. You might say, hey, that sounds like a good, good plan. I like that ticket. Where's my coupon for going out now and sinning? If you even begin to think down that road, you don't understand anything about what I'm trying to say. Oh, it is a vulnerability when I talk about affirming the love of God, but you need to understand that whenever anyone tries to take the kindness or grace of God and turn it into a license to sin, they're actually treating something precious as something to be despised because the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God should lead us to obedience, not to license. But barring those two, I hope to speak to people today like me When they start to be reminded of their own unworthiness, they don't fall into the trap of doubting that God truly cares and that God truly loves. Because for those of us that are adopted children of the king, he does and he always will. So note it carefully. Even when things get this bad, look at it, verse 1. Things can be this bad, and they were in David's life, that Ahithophel, which was David's best, closest advisor in the kingdom, is now giving advice to Absalom, his son, who is really out to kill him, not only to take over the throne, but to snuff out any threat of dad coming back into Jerusalem. And Ahithophel, the traitor, says to Absalom, the rebel, you know, here's what you should do. You should choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. 
You know, if I were you, I would attack him while he's weak and weary. Now, all this is exactly hitting the nail on the head of reality for David. David had tried to get out of Jerusalem, but he's taking all his possessions. He's taking his meager army. He's taking his his family. He's taking women and children, and he's trying to transport them as quickly and as efficiently as possible. But, you know, this is hard for them to make much much ground at a a very good clip. And if you take 12,000 army men and you go hard after these people, you're going to catch up with them in a matter of hours. And while they're weak and weary, man, strike him down. Strike him with terror, verse 2 says. And all the people, you know what they're going to do? They're going to flee. No one's going to be loyal to David. And you know what? If you really want a, a strategic strike, here's what you do. Just focus on David. Make that the only prize of this, of this war. Strike down only the king and all the people. They'll turn. They'll come back. And the death of the man you seek, that'll mean the return of all and all the people will return unharmed. And there Absalom leaned back in his chair with all the elders and advisor and Absalom stroked his beard and he says, you know what? That's a good plan. That'll work. He didn't get much of a head start. Let's take everybody. Let's go. He's weak. He's tired. He's weary. He's probably laying down in the middle of the desert somewhere surrounded by his kids and, 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 and all his possessions. Let's just go get him. And let's tell every, every soldier in the army, that's the only guy we want. Give a big prize, a lot of silver, get some tax exemption to the man that kills David. You know what that spells right there? A sure defeat. You, you, get, you can guarantee that from a human perspective, that plan will work. Take a snapshot of that right there. It doesn't get any worse for David than that. Oh, it was bad when you're running from Saul. It's worse when you're running from your own offspring. And it's really bad when you have the top military strategist giving him strategic, clear advice that will actually be effective in the defeat of your life. This is a bad day for David. And it's a day I might sit back and say, you know what, my, my, my life is uh, obviously not in favor and in tune with God. Why would God allow this? I I, I obviously am not loved by God. But interesting, this little contrastive conjunction in verse number five gives us the other side of it. Something's about to change. Something's going to happen right here in verse number five. It says, but Absalom, as though out of the blue, as though unprompted, just some fluke, he just says, you know, what about Hushai the Archite? Remember that guy? He was the other friend of David. Unlike Ahithophel, he was loyal to David, but he was under the ruse and the guise of of being loyal to Absalom. And he was there as a spy, actually as someone who could perhaps do something to help David by being in the inner court of the rebel king. And sure enough, Absalom calls on him and says, what about you, Hushai the Archite? What do you think we ought to do? Oh, we got the advice from the top dog, Ahithophel. What do you think we should do? Look at verse 7. Hushai replies to Absalom, well, you know, King, uh, Ahithophel's a real sharp guy, but this time I don't think what he said is really the best plan. I don't think it's good. You know, your dad, I mean, he's an incredible fighter. He's fierce as a wild bear, robbed of his cubs. Besides, your father, he's an experienced fighter. He's not going to spend the night with the troops. He's probably hidden in a cave somewhere. You're never going to find him. It's not, you don't do it that way. And he starts to dismantle Ahithophel's advice. And in verse 11, he says, here's my advice to you. He says, I advise you to let all of Israel, from Dan, as far north as you can go, to Beersheba, as far south as you can go in Israel, and and get everybody together. Get an army as numerous as the sand on the seashore and let them all be gathered to you. You know what that spells? Time. It takes time. You get an army together with all these people and call people and send messengers out and have them all come and report to Jerusalem. That's going to take a lot of time. That's exactly what Hushai was trying to do. 
buy David some time. He knows he's moving east, trying to get out of the country. And he just says, you know, I got to stop Ahithophel's advice because they will go and overtake him before he even gets to the Jordan River and they will kill him. So if I can buy some time, what can I do? And thinking on his feet, he comes up with a plan and his plan is to tell Ahithophel or to tell Absalom rather to gather a big army together and make sure you get everybody from every tribe of Israel involved. That's a bold plan. And even he says in the bottom of verse 11, you know, I think you should lead it, Absalom. And I don't know what he's thinking, either appealing to his pride or trying to perhaps put, a, put Absalom in harm's way. Whatever it is, you, you got to see beads of sweat forming on, 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 his, on Hushai's brow as he starts to say this, wondering if, if perhaps Absalom's going to buy it. Absalom going to believe this? Absalom going to do this? And amazingly enough, drop your eyes down to verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel say, hmm, Hushai the Archite's advice, hey, it's better than Ahithophel's. And they take his advice. That is amazing. And you might start to, from a human perspective, say, well, you know, that old uh, Absalom, he's pretty, uh, he's pretty uh, pers- you know, easily persuaded, he's gullible. You might say, well, that, uh, that Hushai, he was sure a good spokesman. He did a great job persuading. And, and, and you might say, well, that Ahithophel, he didn't really pitch his case too well. He could have done a better job. You can say all that. And perhaps there's some truth to those statements. But the reality of what was going on is found in the bottom of verse 14. Here's really what's happening. And it ought to be underlined and starred and highlighted in your Bible. Because you want to see what God was doing in the midst of David's crisis. He was working. For David. Look at it. It says Yahweh had determined to, to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel. Read it again. Yahweh had determined, he had made a decision, he had decided that he wasn't going to let Ahithophel's advice win over and he was going to bring disaster on Absalom. And so he was there like a, like a puppeteer pulling the strings and, and he was working it all out. He was making it happen. Now I'm in the desert wondering if this is going to be my last night of sleep before I die. I'm running as a fugitive. I got the best advisor advising my rebel son who wants my head. And all of a sudden, God is sweeping in and showing that he still cares and he still loves and he's still there for taking care of all the details of David's life. Do you see what that, that's all about? That's all about a guy who looks at his circumstances and says, look at my circumstances. God does not care about me. But in reality, God does care. There's one song that we know for sure because of the superscription in the book of the Psalms that David actually wrote. And I'd like you to turn to it. Psalm 3. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel 17. We'll be right back. But in Psalm 3, David writes a song. Now, we looked at one last time that he wrote about Ahithophel. But this week, look at this one. Clearly, the title says that this is a psalm that David wrote while he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Notice the things that were going through his mind. And when I read the lyrics of this song, I'm convinced that David got it. He was getting it. He understood that though his circumstances looked really bad, he had a confidence. He had a faith that even though everything would point to the contrary, he was saying, I believe God still loves me, even if my life really stinks. Look what he says. Verse one. Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? There's the context. Bad day. Running from my son is bad. Everyone's turned against me. Many are saying of me, here's the commentary of the man on the street, God will not deliver him. You just see him, ah, you know, poor guy. God is not going to get him out of this jam. All the circumstances led to that obvious and logical conclusion. God is not for David this time. God has forsaken David. God does not care about David. God is not paying attention to David's need. God is not going to deliver David. All those things were things that people were saying. But look at verse 3. David had a different resolve. He had a different level of faith and confidence in God. He said, you know, that may look that way, but 
I am confident that God is a shield around me. Yahweh, you bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. Do you see what that's saying? I mean, my, my head is in the dirt right now and I'm in big, big trouble and I need lots of protection. But you know what? I, I, I have confidence that God is going to be my deliverer. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my shield around me. He's going he's gonna to lift up my head when, when my head is in the dirt. What does that assume about God? What is the assumption David is making? He's assuming God loves me. My life stinks, but God loves me. My circumstances are bad. and Everybody else is going to look at my life and say, it's bad. God doesn't like him anymore. And I'm going to be confident that God loves me. That's huge. Put it this way in your outline if you're taking notes. If you've got the worksheet out, the first thing you need to write down is this. You and I as Christians, it's the challenge of our life. It was the challenge of David's life. He succeeded. Let us succeed. Here's what we need to do. Refuse to doubt God's love. That's what it comes down to. Refuse to doubt God's love. God has promised to love his kids, not because they're lovely, not because they're good, but because he is a loving God who commits himself to his adopted kids. And if that is true, no matter if he lets us go into the desert for a while, no matter if things get really bad in my health, my relationships, my finances, it doesn't matter. God is loving us. He may be working behind the scenes like he was in the court of Absalom, but he loves us. He never forsakes us. He never loses his attention on us. How much attention does God give you? How much attention does God give your life? The Bible says in Luke chapter 12, as Jesus stood there teaching the crowds, he says, you know the sparrows? You can, buy, you can buy five of them for two cents. He says, there's not one of those birds that God's not paying special attention to. And you know what? Your life, how much more do you think it's worth to God than those birds? And he put it this way. He said, you are so much the center of God's attention that down to the minute details of your life, God is checking on you all the time. How much so? Here's what, here's what he puts out. I love it. Every hair on your head is numbered. And that changes all the time, right? Check the drain on your shower, right? <laughs> it's changing all the time. And God is tracking that. God is, is noticing what's going on in your life to what extent. If you're his kid, to the most minute extent of your life. Oh, but I don't feel God. Doesn't matter. You better believe he loves you. Oh, I don't see God in my circumstances. It doesn't matter. You better believe that he loves you. I don't think God's paying much attention to my dilemma right now. Don't believe that. You must refuse to doubt that God loves you because that's the promise for his kids. Never leave you, never forsake you. His love is constant. His love is constant. You're listening to Focal Point and a message from pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Mike Fabares called Believing God Cares When It's Hard to Believe. You know, a great way to be reminded of God's enduring love for you is by joining us on this program every day as we study the depths of God's Word. And if you ever miss a program, you can download the free Focal Point mobile app to listen on demand. You can also listen online when you visit focalpointradio.org. Well, something we're passionate about here at Focal Point is helping people develop a deep love for the Scriptures. That's because the better we know and understand what God says, the better we can apply it to our lives and make a real difference in the world. And this month, we're featuring a book filled with practical resources to help you further develop Christian disciplines. It's titled The Pursuit of Excellence by Dr. George Sweeting. In this book, Dr. Sweeting explores the nine marks of Christians who pursue and attain excellence and teaches us how to press on, even when it's difficult. 
We'll send you a copy of The Pursuit of Excellence as our way of saying thanks when you donate to the Ministry of Focal Point this month. Just call 888-320-5885 or give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. If you're ready to take your support to the next level, you can also request the Pursuit of Excellence when you join the team of Focal Point Partners by committing to monthly donations. This consistent support is crucial, allowing us to expand the reach of this ministry. Joining is easy. Just go to focalpointradio.org. We're so grateful for your support because it enables countless others to explore the depths of Scripture with us each day. On their behalf, thank you. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Thursday as we continue the message called Believing God Cares When It's Hard to Believe, right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.